All right, where the botanists are drunk and the music is funk. Welcome back to a very special edition of Liquid Gold right here on We Own This Town, the We Own This Town podcast network, always available at weownthistown.net. Shout out to Michael Eads, our producer. Today's a very special episode. I'm your host, Mike Wolf, along with my co-host, Mr. Kenneth Dedman, who will be joining us next time with a special booze news update. Today, we celebrate the two-year anniversary of my book, Garden to Glass, Grow Your Drinks from the Ground Up. Um, So we've got a really special interview to celebrate that for our Books and Booze series right here on Liquid Gold. We have Amy Stewart, the drunken botanist and the author of, gosh, must be 17 books now. If you include her Cop Sisters novels, which are just incredible, so check that out. We talk about her move into fiction, as well as the inspiration of her path from her first garden through to wicked bugs, wicked plants, to drunken botanist, and also, as well as we discuss her brand new project, All About Trees. So a really special interview today. For more info on Amy, head to amystewart.com. Tons of great info there, and you can sign up for her her newsletter there. She's got a Substack as well. And speaking of websites, we have the brand new Liquid Gold website, liquidgold.show, where you can go and check out all our past episodes and also see a really funny photo of Kenneth and I winning a cocktail competition. So check out liquidgold.show. We'll have more content coming to that website and to that uh, page as we go along. She was such a big inspiration to all of us going back to when we opened Husk in 2013 here in Nashville. And um, obviously, she's such an inspiration to so many people. And I think writers out there will really enjoy what she has to say about, you know, these kernels of ideas that kind of sit around and they can sit around for a long time until you're ready to write them. So lots here for the uh, budding writer or the experienced writer. She was just a joy to talk to. So thanks to Amy. So I should probably just throw it to our interview. Here it is. Yours truly sitting down with Amy Stewart via telephone via Portland, Oregon. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, my favorite kind of botanist is a drunken botanist. It's so good to have you. Let's welcome Miss Amy Stewart to Liquid Gold. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show and everything and all your inspiring books over the years. When your book, when when The Drunken Botanist came out in 2013, it was pretty close to when we were opening Husk here in Nashville. And just right. the whole bar team was just all about the book and people were looking at different parts of the book and coming up with different drinks based on what they were reading. So it was a really awesome time for all of us for that book to come out. It was like the book we had all been waiting for. I, lo- I love hearing that, you know, um, one of the coolest things that's happened to me writing nonfiction is when I hear from people who are like, this book was really helpful to me or meaningful to me in terms of my job or my, you know, my career or my vocation or what I do in the world. And I just think that's what an unexpected thing. So it's always amazing for me to hear that. It was like this book we were all we were all looking for. And then there it was. It was like we couldn't really describe what we were trying to do in terms of bringing the natural world and putting it into your glass and making cocktails and thinking about all these different plants that were uh, that were growing around us as well. Well, you know, I had the idea for a drunken botanist when I was walking around a 
a liquor store with a friend who was also a horticulture writer. And, you know, I just started going off on like, you know, he was an expert in agaves and I'm like, well, there's a bottle full of agave right there. And there's a bottle full of sugar cane and, you know, just naming all the plants and all these bottles. And I was just like, you know, someone should write a book about this. Like, I don't think anyone realizes that there's nothing but plants and all these bottles, but like, what are the plants and why, why are they in these bottles? And when I went to, um, Tales of the Cocktail for the first time, I realized like, oh, there's all these people who are super interested in the botany, but they don't know anything about botany. <laughs> right, right. They're more drunken, less botanist. That's right. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm in touch with all these botanists or, or I know how to find them or, and they'll talk to me. So like, I think I can be the go between between the plant world and, you know, kind of the, the cocktail world. There needed to be a bridge there. And I felt like I was somebody who knew how to do that. So there you go. Yeah. And I feel like people then started to look at you as like this saint, you know, <laughs> it, <laughs> which, you know, which is I, pretty cool. Well, I, I don't get a lot of that around my house, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I am glad that I was able to do that. And, you know, it was fun. I think it was kind of fun for the botanists as well, because like I would be talking to somebody who's spent their whole life studying just one plant and they're kind of off in their world doing their thing. And I'm like, you know, there's like 700 bartenders in New Orleans who would greet you as a God if you walked in and started talking to them about this stuff. So totally. I think it was kind of fun for them too to realize like there's actually huge public interest in your obscure little corner of the world. We just have to find a way to bring it to light. So that was another cool side of it is you know, people who are off doing really doing hard science um, with these plants and in other ways and just remembering like, you know, this also goes in Campari. And so it's interesting for that reason, too. And let's explore that. So I love that. It's cool you mentioned Campari because we were um, I was doing a lot of research about Campari before we were opening Audrey because we wanted to make our own Campari. Oh. And so I was diving into what maybe some of the secret ingredients are. What are some of the ingredients you might not think about? Obviously, there's orange and things like that. But we uh, zeroed in on calamus root uh -huh. and sourced some of that. And just an amazing, fascinating plant, you know, and it actually grew wild all over Appalachia. And so that's just one ingredient and one little thing that um, opened up, you know, helped to open up a whole new world for us. So. It's never ending. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's never ending. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of, especially these older, you know, concoctions that, I mean, today you walk in and buy them on the shelf at a liquor store, but 150, 200 years ago, they were kind of being made in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can track down old recipes and they're usually in pharmaceutical books that can give you a hint, you know, like, well, what exactly is in chartreuse? What exactly is in Frenette? I mean, they don't want to tell you, but it, you can sort of page back through history and go, oh, there was a time when this was actually just like a common pharmaceutical recipe. And so we can, we can get some hints about its origins um, in history that has nothing to do with the company that operates it today. Totally. And I always say what the, the short answer to what's in chartreuse is everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a, 
I had a funny experience. So I went to the Chartreuse Distillery oh, wow. in France. Mm. Oh, yeah. The research for this book was super fun. Yes. So um, I went, and, and anyone who's ever been knows that it's a little like going to, like, Disneyland for grown-ups. I mean, they take you on this tour, and the staff are wearing these kind of lime green blazers, you know, Chartreuse green blazers. And they, they kind of show you the stuff, but they don't really show you anything. Mm-hmm. Um, however, these the idea of these yellow and green liqueurs this again is like an old old um it it comes from an early medicinal recipe in that part of france and in northern spain and uh lots of people make it chartreuse doesn't have the you know they don't hold the patent to this i mean it's it's just a style Mm -hmm. and that style is made all over that region so we got in the car and drove down the road to a little family-owned distillery making pretty much the exact same thing and they just had barrels and barrels and barrels of dried plant material sitting out. And they sort of jokingly are like, oh, this is our secret recipe. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, if you know anything at all about plants, you could just look in the barrel and go, oh, that's chamomile. Oh, and there's some lemon verbena. And I mean, it's all super obvious what the ingredients are, right? So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So cool. Did you, in some of your research, did you stumble upon any like old, you know, old receipts as they might be called or old recipes that, you know, you felt like, oh my God, look at this. I found like kind of a holy grail of something. Or did you stumble onto any, any cool, like old hundred year old, 200, 300 year old recipes in in your research? Well, you know, what I had what I was working from was I had a few old pharmaceutical books. So I'm, I'm lucky to be married to a rare book dealer and he turns up all kinds of cool things connected to whatever I happen to be working on. So, um, I bet. Uh, yeah. So pharmacists would have these big old books that were full of recipes of stuff that they would make. You know, I mean, the reason I keep talking about pharmacists and medicine is that, you know, um, in the 1800s and before, we didn't really have pills. We had plants that got soaked in alcohol and handed out as medicine. That's mm. like, that was everything. That was mm. all we had. And sometimes that worked, but usually it didn't. <laughs> it was not super effective stuff. But um, all those recipes sort of over time became cocktail ingredients. You add a little sugar to that, mm-hmm. and pretty soon you're putting it in your evening brandy, and, and there you go. Yeah. So, um so, you know, I would I would definitely find a lot of old recipes that seem to uh, point to uh, things that later became cocktail ingredients. But, you know, my focus was really on the plant. So all I needed to know is, is this a plant that seems viable, seems like something that's really used in alcohol today? And once it is, then I'm off talking to botanists and I'm sort mm-hmm. of outside of the cocktail world and in the plant world. So that was one big thing about this book. It's like, it was fun to go to the Chartreuse uh, distillery. Those sorts of things are cool to go do. Mm-hmm. But mostly, like, I didn't need to talk to distillers. I needed to speak to botanists and in some cases farmers mm-hmm. um, because uh, because I felt like that was the thing that was missing. Like, you know, people like David Wandridge do this incredible job of digging into the history of cocktails, but who's really digging into the plants themselves? So that was kind of the difference. That's awesome. Um, and let's throw a shout to the bookstore that you were talking about, your husband, Scott Brown. It's Downtown Brown Books, and that is in Portland, correct? Yes. Portland, well, Oregon. Um, it, it, yeah, and it's uh, it's one of those places you kind of have to have the secret password to go. It's not oh, really nice. yeah. public, but, um, but people, do, people do find him and, and pop in. So, yeah, he's That's got a tiny little, tiny little shop in our neighborhood where he's 
at this very moment, cataloging and packing and shipping books and all that stuff. Do you ever have to say to him now, now, honey, make sure I, I look at the list of stuff that's coming in. Like, do you, you, cause I imagine you get first pick. Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't get first pick unless I've got the budget for it. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah. Some, yeah. He brings some incredible stuff home, but usually it's home for a night so I can just look at it or well, that's cool. photograph it. Yeah. And he yeah. does come up with actually interesting stuff that's kind of in the booze world. Cause now he pays a little bit more attention to that. So mm-hmm. like he had recently, he had, I want to say a hundred or hundred and twenty year old guide to pulque, um, oh, in wow. Spanish, published in Mexico. So it's very incredible rare to see. Yeah, it's rare to see that kind of stuff actually coming out of Mexico. So yeah, he'll turn up these little treasures, and I'm like, please just take a cell phone picture of every page so that I have it if I ever want to go back and look at it. Like I know it's going to end up in the hands of some collector mm-hmm. somewhere, and I'll never see it again. But I just I want the content at least. That's amazing. And do you all know yeah. about the um, the library in New York City that the owners of Cocktail Kingdom, they run a library that's all old, real rare um, cocktail books. Oh, that's cool. No, and I, I don't think I knew about that. Yeah, I think if you're ever out there, you might want to check it out. I think you just get in touch with Cocktail Kingdom and you can get access to the library and check things out. But might be might be oh. kind of cool. Um, yeah, good for them. That's great. So let's stay in Mexico for a second because... Um, there was a time where you were you were you were at Google speaking, right? Yes. And you were making tequila cocktails. Can you tell me about yes. that story a little bit? Okay. It sounds so, pretty cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so Google runs a lot of great programs to keep their employees, you know, entertained and, and happy. And so they have a thing called Authors at Google, where they will bring in an author to do a little talk. And so this is a huge privilege for a for an author to get asked to go do this. And they typically broadcast it across all their campuses. So you might be at, at one of their locations, but it'll be simulcast across all of them. So I had done that for a few of my books. And then they asked me to come for Drunken Botanist. And this was going to be in their location in L.A., and, uh, and they said, you know, we're going to have you on a Friday and it's sort of a lunchtime thing. And we thought we would do a little, we want you to talk about the science of tequila specifically. And we thought that we would do a little tequila tasting to go along with this. And I'm just emailing with this woman. And I said, she goes, so tell me what to buy. I just need a list of what to buy. And I am so middle class that I can't even conceive of how wealthy Google is. Mm -hmm. So like an idiot, I wrote back and I said, well, you know, um, tequila and mezcal, I mean, it can be pretty high end. So if you want to just kind of let me know your budget, I can suggest a few things in that range. (laughs) Uh I'm such an idiot. And she writes back and she's like, yeah, no, just tell us what to get. (laughs) (laughs) Google us. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like we can just, you know, we can just sort of buy the entire tequila supply of Mexico and you could just choose. Would that be easier? You know, it's sort of like, I just forget. And even then I couldn't quite bring myself. So I ended up suggesting ranges. It's like, all right, I'm going to, Yes, here's this $400 bottle that would be great to taste, but here's also a good a good solid $40, $50 choice. Like I could not bring myself to let them spend this kind of money. Of course they don't even care. And so I go and I do the talk and it's super fun and lots of people come and of course everyone shows up for a tequila tasting and afterwards the woman's giving me sort of a little tour of the very cool Google campus and she's like, that was great, that was really fun it's really been one of our most popular events I think it's the most successful event we've had since we had the cast of Modern Family come talk to us 
Oh, wow. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's a thing? Like, you guys can seriously just call up some TV show and go, we would like the entire cast to come and entertain our employees at lunchtime. That's amazing. I guess, yeah. I guess when you're Google, you can do things like that. Right. They're probably thinking, like, which tequila brand do you want us to buy? Exactly. <laughs> 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 That's what they were asking you. Like, should we buy one of these? Yeah. They totally were. And here I am worrying about what they can afford. Uh, whatever. That's I'll funny. Get, I, I, will, I would never get used to being around people like that if uh, if I had to. As it is, that kind of thing is only a once once every 10 years kind of thing for me. So, What kind of tequila cocktails did you, did you make for them? Oh, I didn't. No, no. I didn't make any cocktails. Oh, okay. we, just, we just tasted. Yeah. We just tasted. Yeah. That's good. I think that's the that's the only way I really like to drink agave-based drink. I'm not a margarita fan, and, uh, you know, I really love aged tequilas and especially aged mezcals. It's like drinking a great scotch. Like, why would you put anything in that? Just just drink it. Just enjoy it. And one of our favorite things, Kenneth and I, who does the, who does the podcast with me as well, he does – he's like our booze news anchor. He uh, – we love doing prickly pear this time of year. Because a lot of people oh. grow prickly pear out here, and it 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 fruits real late and can handle a little bit of frost. Um, so there's some people working with that right now, and tequila is a great companion for that. And you have so much cool prickly pear stuff in Drunken Botanist. Did you ever get to try and mess around with the um, prickly pear syrup recipe in here or the calanche? I know you've got the calanche in here, which is like like a really simple, mildly fermented uh, fizzy prickly pear soda basically or champagne um did you ever get to taste that and mess around with prickly pear much yeah you know what i um what i wanted to do with with the recipes in drunken botanist was really just sort of point out to people like here's a good way to actually taste the plant in the the glass this is like the best expression of that and so for the most part they're not um in a lot of cases it's just a classic cocktail it's just sort of like well have an old-fashioned you know try that I was just trying to keep things very, very simple and go, here's just a, a way that you can be sure you're actually you're actually getting what the plant has to offer here. Well, and that's what's so cool about this book. It's very accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the recipes are simple. Um, but even, you know, you have parsnip before prickly pear. There's some fascinating stuff in there. And then with prickly <laughs> pear, there's it's just a couple pages. But there's, you know, you talk about the syrup. Um, you talk about um, the Spanish explorers and missionaries using prickly pear um you talk about a mildly fermented thing you've got a sangria and then this bugs and booze these bugs and booze things in the book are fascinating and you talk about how prickly pear was was key for carmine dye so that's just and that's just one plant in this book so i feel like that's a that's a good indication of like all the information in that book so pretty cool yeah I know, um, and I do think I love I love dropping in the bug stuff because I've written a couple of well I wrote a book about bugs I also wrote a book about earthworms so you know I'm always sort of thinking about that kind of stuff and I think it's good to remember that you know these plants they uh, they don't exist in isolation right they live in an ecosystem mm-hmm. and um, so so in terms of insect life or bird life or even just what's going on in the soil you know what's happening in the microbial life of the soil that's all it's all part of their story and also where did they come from like originally where did they come from is this a is this a plant that is native to china and and came to europe and how did it change over time and and what influence have humans and agriculture um had 
on it over the years. So those mm-hmm. are, you know, those are the stories that I'm really interested in um, in telling. Yeah, like kudzu would be a great example of just a fascinating plant that you know could probably if we wanted it to almost cover the entire country, but is not necessarily <laughs> native to uh, to the United States. Um, were you always interested in the natural world and? The bugs, the trees, the plants, uh, just everything. Were you like always someone who was out playing with, playing around with the bugs and catching crawdads? And was this something you kind of grew into? Yeah, not really. Um, I grew up in Texas. Um, I'm from Dallas, Fort Worth area. And so, you know, gardening in, in, uh, in Texas really is more like something like what you would call yard work when I was a kid, right? Mm -hmm, Like somebody mm -hmm. had to go mow the lawn, but usually that was my brother. And, um, so I, I really didn't, what happened is that I moved out to Santa Cruz, California after college. And that's a place where everything grows. There's Mm. there's nothing better than, than sort of the central California coast. Mm -hmm. Um, so I planted a garden for the first time and this is in my twenties. And uh, what I really wanted was to be a writer. What I really wanted was to write. And so that garden just happened to be the thing that was happening in my life. So that's what I wrote about. It's kind of like if I'd gotten into, I don't know, cooking or knitting or (laughs) something else, maybe I would have written a book about that instead. But so my first book was a memoir about my first garden in Santa Cruz. And then one book just led to the other, like, there was a chapter about earthworms in that first book, and that led me to write a book about earthworms. And then we moved to Humboldt County, California, and uh, I took a tour of a flower farm, like a commercial flower farm. Mm-hmm. So that led me to led me to write a book about the commercial flower industry. Yeah, Flower uh, Confidential, the good, the bad, and the beautiful in the business of flowers. Uh, yeah, really cool. Flower Confidential. And, and, uh, and that kind of, by the way, was like my first introduction into – writing a book about an industry where there's like a whole, there's people and organizations and a whole culture and subcultures. And I've got to get into this world and figure it out. So Mm -hmm. that was a little bit of advanced training for drunken botanist where I'm like, I got to understand the cocktail community and figure out who these people are and what are they interested in and what are the unanswered questions and what, what hasn't, what are the stories that haven't been told so I can do that. So yeah. Yeah. But every book kind of leads to the next one, you know, a, a person I interviewed for Flower Confidential had some poisonous plants in his greenhouse, and that led me to write a book called Wicked Plants, which is sort of about deadly, dangerous plants. Um, and then in that book, there's a little section called The Devil's Bartender that's about supposedly poisonous plants that end up in booze. So, yeah. you know, looking back, you can see like, oh, well, that was kind of the groundwork for Drunken Botanist. So really, it's just kind of been like I do one thing and that leads to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. As long as I can convince a publisher that it's interesting, I get to just sort of go chasing after these little lines of inquiry, basically. Well, that's incredible. Yeah, you had the whole kind of wicked, you had like a wicked period where you were talking wicked plants, you had the coloring book, the and then wicked bugs. Um, right. And you had a garden. I don't know if you still have this garden or if you've transplanted it or whatever. You had a garden that was sort of notorious for containing all these different wicked plants. Um, How did that come about? What was that like to kind of take care of those plants? Yeah, so I planted a poison garden. Uh, This is when I lived in California. And what happened is that people started giving me 
plants that oh, yeah. I was writing about in the book. And they're not plants that are easy to come by. So you cannot walk into a garden center and ask for mandrake. <laughs> they don't have it. Mm-hmm. It's not sold. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's people out there growing it and trading it. So pretty soon, you know, I've got all these pots sitting around my kitchen door. And it's like, well, what am I going to do with these? So I decided I needed to get them in the ground. And um, I decided to plant this kind of creepy poison garden that was right outside my kitchen door. And it was a lot of fun, um, but also kind of a lot of work because I wanted it to like visually be interesting. Like I wanted it to look cool Mm -hmm. and have cool plants with interesting stories that um, plants that I hadn't grown or seen before. But the climate, I was living in Humboldt County, which is uh, way up north on the coast. Uh, it never gets to be more than about 60 degrees there. So the climate's not perfect for everything. So it was kind of a struggle to keep everything alive. Then when I started writing Drunken Botanist, the same thing was happening. People are giving me these plants like, oh, you you know, what about black currant, which is used to make cassis? Nobody mm. grows that. Here, I have one. Or yeah. slow, which makes slow gin. So once again, I'm like, oh, I want to, I got to get these in the ground. And I realized that a cocktail garden is a lot more useful than a poison garden, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I can actually serve this to my guests as opposed to the other garden. So I ripped out the poison garden and planted a cocktail garden, which was very useful and a lot more fun and kind of more of a party space also, just like a, a cool outdoor space as well as um, growing like 30 or 40 different plants that could be used as cocktail ingredients. That's and awesome. The, the great the great irony is that when we moved up here to Portland and we sold that house, the people who bought the house, I guess, had Googled me and kind of figured some things out. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the realtor sent a request along saying they would like you to certify that there are no poisonous plants on the premises when they buy the house. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had to explain to him that, you know, most plants in most people's gardens are not things you should eat. And like hemlock is a weed and anybody's yard could have hemlock in it at any time. So That's right. And, and that they were getting a very nice cocktail garden, which they should enjoy. Wow. Well, lucky <laughs> so them. What else has that now? But now, so didn't you move into like into the city in Portland? And yes. yeah, how are you, how are you liking that, that life? Cause you were, you know, you've lived in some of these areas that, um, where you could grow anything and uh, and you had this big garden. How has it been like living the city life? Oh, it's been great. Um, Portland has completely lived up to everything I wanted it to be. It's a, it's a wonderful place to live. I'm glad to have a little less to take care of because, <laughs> you know, we had a hundred-year-old house and a big garden and a lot of animals. And it's, it's, it's sort of nice to not be responsible for quite so much. But sure. I'm only I'm just a block away from Washington Park and Forest Park. So there's loads of nature almost in my backyard. So it's, it's wonderful. We have talked about this progression that you've had going from, you know, writing about your first garden and then through to, you know, this natural progression that led you to, you know, Wicked Bugs, Wicked Plants, uh, the flower book. But then um, you sort of shifted gears a little bit and you have this alternative career. You have a detective series. You have an entire series, the Cop Sisters novels, of which you just released one a few months ago, uh, Miss Cop Uh Investigates which is the seventh installment of this series. Um, how did this series come about? And do you, is it really just you love, it seems like you just love writing these books in this style. So tell me how that came about. 
Yeah, well, I've been wanting to write fiction, you know. Um, fiction is mostly what I read for pleasure. So I'd always kind of felt like, you know, why don't I write novels? I mean, what what am I doing? So in between, a lot of these nonfiction books have been failed attempts at novels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a writer once said to me that uh, novels are like waffles. You have to throw the first one out. So I have a couple oh, that, wow. you know, are in a drawer and will always be in a drawer. But when I was working on Drunken Botanist, there's a gin smuggler who's named in, in Drunken Botanist. His name is Henry Kaufman. And I was just kind of doing a little research on him to figure out, you know, who is this guy? Am I really going to put him in Drunken Botanist? And I found a lot of people named Henry Kaufman at that time period, about 100 years ago, who'd gotten into all kinds of things. Um, I never did find the guy I was looking for, but I found this other guy named Henry Kaufman who... who um, got into a confrontation with these three women in Patterson, New Jersey, a hundred years ago. And it's this whole drama. It was in the papers a lot. And the upshot of it is that one of the three women ended up being hired as a deputy sheriff because of her work in this conflict against this guy. Mm. So um, it's one of those random things, you know, you're doing research and you go looking for one thing and you find something else you weren't, didn't mean to find. And uh, usually I have to tell myself like, all right, put that down back away, get back to work. You know, I had to finish Drunken Botanist. But in this case, I was so fascinated with the story of these three sisters and this woman who was a really early, early pioneer in uh, law enforcement for women. And um, I just sort of couldn't put it down. So I kept researching and digging into it. And I realized that it's actually a very interesting story. No one's told it. No one's ever heard of them. And, um, I just sort of fell in love with uh, with these three sisters and ended up writing seven novels about them, all based on their true story. Like almost everything that happens in these books is real. Wow. And uh, yeah, so the seventh one just came out a couple months ago. Incredible. Tell me about that shift. Um, so I know you wanted to write fiction. Well, first, won't you tell me, how do you think you failed on those books? Just for other writers that listen to the show, we're doing this whole books and booze thing where we're kind of talking about how the worlds of booze and writing intersect. And um, tell me a little bit about that failure. Like, why do you think you failed? You know, I, I'm not in hindsight, I'm not sure I did. I, you mm-hmm. know, the thing is that I had a publisher and this happens to anyone who does any kind of creative work. What happens is you start working with a, whether it's a publisher or an art gallery or a record label, whatever, you know, whatever field you're in. And the, and the company that you're teamed up with, they know how to sell what they know how to sell. So they're good at, you know, my publisher was very good at selling my nonfiction books and they understood it. And uh, that's what they wanted me to do more of. And what happens when you're successful at something is everybody wants you to do more of the last thing. Mm-hmm. Keep doing that. We know mm-hmm. how to sell that. We can push more of that out into the world. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make a change, sometimes it's just not something that, whoever you've been working with can really support. They don't, they don't know how to, they don't, it's not what they're good at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my publisher was just not real happy about it. And I was so kind of, I think embarrassed to have done something that they didn't like that I didn't really even consider shopping around other publishers or pursuing it. Mm -hmm. Um, I could have, I could have worked harder on one of those early novels and made it a better book. And if they weren't interested in it, maybe I would have at least had the confidence to say, well, if you don't want to publish this, then someone else will. But I just kind of didn't at the time. So I can't honestly say whether any of them could have turned out to be to be good books or, or not. I mean, 
one of the things that I think is tough for writers is that, you know, if you put all this effort into writing a two or 300 page book, you do sort of want it to be out in the world. It feels like a waste of time if it's not. But, you know, you think in terms of art, like I'm also an artist. And um, one of the things about art is that, like, I fill sketchbooks with failed drawings. It's how you learn to draw. You have mm-hmm. to draw it badly before you can draw it well. But I think as writers, we, you know, we just think, well, it's it's this giant pile of pages. It has to be worth something. But it might have just been you learning how to do it. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, fascinating. But when I finally did decide to write about the cop sisters, it was kind of like my midlife crisis book. Like I felt like, you know, I'm really in love with the story. I really want to tell this story. I don't want to, I don't want to keep doing what one publisher tells me to do for 10 or 20 more years of my career before I get around to pursuing something that's maybe more of a passion project. I want to do passion projects now. Mm-hmm. So, so I ended up taking it to a different publisher. I mean, my publisher, I think just couldn't, couldn't see it and it wasn't the kind of book they did anyway it was just a different genre so it's probably for the best what what's that process like for you when you're um so i can imagine with say flower confidential drunken botanist wicked plants um there's this research you're obviously very good at research and your your books end up um design wise and the way they're put together just really entertaining um but what's that process like for you to go from working like that then to working in fiction, do you, there's obviously a research component because you're telling a story that's true from a hundred years ago, but do you have to like only give yourself a set amount of time? You're like, I can't just sit here and write and write and write. Is that what's different about fiction for you or what's, what was, what's been different about it for you? Process wise. Well, it is, it is true that I chose to write about something that involved a lot of research, which is obviously, you know, what I'm very comfortable doing and I know mm. how to do it. So um, it, it had that advantage that it didn't feel, uh, you know, it felt very familiar to do that. But of course, the difference with, uh, with fiction is that, you know, I have to figure out how to tell a story that really pulls at people. And so that means taking real life events and kind of restructuring them and moving them around a little bit and making them fit the shape of like the, you know, the three act Hollywood movie in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like novels have this particular shape that they're, that we want them to follow. And it's ironic because we like that three act structure because it somehow feels real to us when actually real life never happens in, in a, in the structure of a three act play, right? Our lives just sort of muddle along with no, no huge moments of insight and no big climaxes. Generally, we just sort of shuffle along from year to year. Mm-hmm. Or at least I do. I don't know. Maybe maybe your life has a lot more big dramatic arcs in it than mine does. But there's no big story arcs in my life. Sure. So uh, it's ironic that we have to impose that on a true story in order to make it read as true. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's the big challenge is like I've got all these real events, but now I have to mush them into the shape of a, of a story with an emotional arc in it that people can connect to. Yeah. Do you, would, would you say that you kind of sketch out an, an outline from that or do you kind of just have your research and then you start just writing and then see where, it, see where it takes you? No, I really, I mean, I try to sketch out an outline. Of course it's going to yeah. change as I go, but I, I just try to, you know, I try to ask myself why, like, why did these things happen? Like I know mm-hmm. what happened because mm-hmm. I have newspaper clippings. I can see the events, but why did they happen? And how did everybody feel about it? And you know, when you're 
one of the things about writing a novel is your characters have to sort of be in conflict with each other. Like they, they have to want different things. And a lot of times the heart of a novel is, you know, how, how do all, how do these people with these opposing needs and these opposing agendas, how do they each find their way through the story? So I do try to map that out and like, whose story is this? And, and what's the emotional arc, which is, it's a tough thing when you're writing a series because, you know, it's one thing to write one single novel where your character has this big emotional arc and they come out changed on the other side. It's another thing with a series and it's like, are they really going to go through a major life change every six months? <laughs> no mm-hmm. one does that. Yeah. Who's going to be exhausted by the end of this? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just figuring out ways to have these, what feels like a journey and feels like a shift but still stays within the context of a real person's real life. Um, so that's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. That's cool. Has the, has any of their family or like ancestors gotten in touch with you? Have you been in touch with like any of their kin about these books? Yeah. Yeah. I tracked him down. I was able to track some people down mostly through ancestry.com. So I did their genealogy on ancestry and I was able to find other people working on the same family tree and sort of reach out that way. So you can imagine how weird that email is to get like, hi, I'm a writer. You've never met. I'm writing about your family. I'm going to write a novel about them. Yeah. A bunch of novels about them. Hope it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> right, but they were very kind and very generous. Um, really, really very sweet about the whole thing. So I was, I got lucky in that respect. And even some of the minor characters are real and I've found their families as well. It's like, yeah, I'm, uh, your great uncle is going to be a character in my next book. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. They've, people have been very kind and generous and want to, want to help and want to hear what I found out about their family too. Cause sometimes I have things that they didn't have. So it's oh, I'm sure that way. Yeah. You're like a resource for them now. Right. Let's talk about the art a little bit. Um, because it's been really cool to watch your progression as an artist on Instagram. You're really good about like sharing what you're doing and all these different styles. You know, you're working with pens, you're working with paint, you're working with pencils, you're doing all these different things. It's pretty amazing. Have you always been doing this or did, did was there some kind of shift over the last um, three or four years or last couple of years where you got really passionate about the art? Just tell me about that journey for you, because you're doing all this beautiful artwork. And then we can talk about this new project that you're working on as well. Yeah, um, about 20 years ago, I started taking an oil painting class. And uh, it was really just kind of something fun to do. I'd moved to a new town and didn't know anybody, you know, so it was just like, well, here's something I could go do every week. And I realized I I really like oil painting. I really, I signed up for the class because it was kind of the only thing available. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, the nice thing about oil painting was that it's a lot like writing. You know, it's all about revision. I mean, Mm -hmm. you put down a layer and you put another layer on top of it. You can wipe that off and change it. Uh, oil takes a long time to dry. So you have a lot of time to rework mm-hmm. and that's exactly what writing is. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I kind of liked it for that reason, but I also just like that it's nonverbal. It's, uh, you know, it's something I can do. I can do it standing up. You get to move around. It's more physical. It gets me away from the computer and away from my desk, something you can do with other people. So I just, I just liked how different it was from, from writing. And so I was doing that for a a long time. And I did sometimes if I traveled, I would like take a little sketchbook with me just to have something more portable. But I didn't really understand how any of that stuff worked. 
And so then in, um, in 2016, <laughs> um, after the election, I um, really wanted something that would sort of keep my mind off all my fears about the world sure. and uh, just, be a, just be a distraction um, from everything that was going on. So I started taking a lot of classes online. It was purely for my own sanity every day, learning watercolor and ink and different techniques that were more portable so that I had something I could take with me when I traveled. And so, yeah, 2016 is when I really started um, sharing a lot more of my art on Instagram and just putting it out there more. And then, you know, these last couple of years, we've sort of been in this shutdown and not able to leave the house much. And so I don't travel the way I used to. I used to be on the road all the time, mostly talking about drunken botanist Mm -hmm. and, uh, Suddenly I was, I was at home with all this extra time on my hands. And I also took a year off from writing books. I sort of didn't do much of anything Mm -hmm. for about a year's worth of this COVID time we've lived through. Yeah. Um, So I just, I just had a lot of time to make art, just experiment and buy new art supplies and find out how they worked. And so it's been this really kind of free and very relaxed time. And, but I've learned a ton about art. So I've really enjoyed that. But it is kind of the opposite of writing in a lot of ways. And that's one of the things I love about it. That's cool. Yeah, we you can see the progression and, and you share a lot of things. So check out the Instagram for Amy Stewart at Amy Stewart. And you're now working on a book where it seems like you are finally, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you've had your artwork in your books before, but now you're working on a project about trees where you are going to have a lot of your artwork in there. You're going to be writing about these different trees. So this is like a very, really cool culmination of sorts. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm writing this book. I have actually had the idea for this kicking around for about a decade or so. Um, years ago at an event, somebody came up to me and told me that they were a tree collector. And mm. I was like, wow, trees, that's a weird thing to collect because they're <laughs> like really big and hard to move. Yeah. So how does that work? And, uh, and then over the years, I've met a few other people who just straight up volunteered to me that they were tree collectors. And so I was keeping a little middle list, like, Oh, here's another one. Here's another one. So, um, yeah, after, a, uh, during, at some point during this last year, um, I thought, you know, I really, I really want my next book to be something very different. I had really resisted the idea to ever, um, illustrate one of my own books. And part of the reason for that is that I didn't have the skills to do, everything that is required. Illustration's a whole thing. So that's a whole profession. I didn't really have the skills and I didn't really know how to use the specific kinds of materials that you need to use for book illustration. But then I kind of accidentally learned all that without meaning to. It's Mm -hmm. just those were the materials that kind of started to interest me. And it occurred to me, like, I think at this point I could manage that. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of got out a lot of my old book ideas, things that had just been sitting on the back burner for years and thought a lot of these would be sort of cool as an illustrated book. Like, I feel like that Mm -hmm. gives it the dimension it needs. And of all the ideas I was thinking about, tree collectors kind of won. It just bubbled up to the top. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a publisher. Random House is going to publish it. Mm -hmm. And I'm right in the middle of interviewing tree collectors from all over the world. So if anybody listening to this collects trees or you know somebody who does, get in touch with me. And and I'll be illustrating it with little portraits of the people and, and their trees. Very simple little kind of like watercolor sketchy type of type of things. But, Very cool. Yeah. That's um, the plan. 
Are you learning a little bit? Because this is something that fascinates me about trees, you know, that people say that there's this research out there that trees sort of communicate and share resources and um, have this mysterious relationship with each other going on deep underground. Have you seen any of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, these are all topics that I thought about a lot when I was writing my book about earthworms, because, Mm -hmm. you know, as you can imagine, earthworms are not alone in soil down there, right? Mm -hmm. They live in this incredibly complex and very crowded community of (laughs) microorganisms. Like it's a, it's a, it's a big crowded city underground. It's Tokyo down there. Yeah. It's busy. There's a lot going on. Mm. So, um, I'm glad to hear people talking about that more with trees. You know, I think that, um, especially for me, having lived in timber country, you know, between Mm -hmm. where I am now in Oregon and where I was before in Northern California, there are definitely people that sort of think that a forest is just like a bunch of trees and you can cut those trees down and stick new trees in the ground and, and, and it's the same deal. And I think that there's so much that we don't understand about the complexities of an ecosystem like a forest and that we need to preserve some untouched, undisturbed, not some, but really all, like anything mm-hmm. at this point anywhere in the world that's untouched and undisturbed, we need to preserve it because we definitely don't understand what we're destroying before we destroy it. Yeah. Are you, after starting work on this book and you're in the middle of it or you're early, middle, I don't know, does it make you more hopeful or less hopeful for the future? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I know. Actually, um, the really nice thing about the stage I'm in right now where I'm just doing tons of interviews with people is, and maybe you experienced this, you know, doing this podcast is that, um, the thing about, about getting people on the phone and, and talking to them about what they're really passionate about. And especially if that passion is trees, uh, it, it gives me a lot of hope. You know, it just reminds me like, wow, there's, there's amazing people all over the world doing amazing things. I mean, one yep. day I'll be talking to somebody in Japan and the next day it'll be somebody in Mexico. And it's like, it's easy to forget what a big world it is and, and how many people are out there doing really different, interesting and important, important things. And when those things involve planting trees, it's just, uh, it's, it's really nice. So, so yeah, no, it definitely gives me hope. Yeah. And that's a whole world. So a garden is something that's cyclical and, um, you could get a seed going that you can see the, you know, you can taste the fruits of your labor 80 days later, 90 days later. Trees are something that are, you know, people always say they're planted for the future generations. So that's just a whole different timeline. So that's kind of fascinating to me. Um, right. Yeah. A lot of these tree collectors know full well that they'll never, they'll never see what they're planting right now. They'll never see it to maturity. It's, it's going to live on after them. But I think that one, so if I could answer, if I could answer your question about doing the podcast and all that, I think the one thing I would take from this conversation that kind of struck me as like, yeah, that's incredible is you were like, yeah, I had this idea kicking around for like 10 years and like here I am doing it. And I think that that's, that, that, that can give hope to anyone that like, you know, these little kernels of ideas that are there, you know, keep them, keep them going, keep them alive a little bit because you never know when it's going to be time to just to do something, you know? Yeah, you never know. I mean, write them down. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't know if you read any of Stephen King's work, but uh, his novel about the Kennedy assassination, I think it's called 11 22 60 
six or sure. whatever the date is. It's an amazing time travel novel connected to the Kennedy assassination. And he had the idea for that decades ago. And he mm-hmm. said, I just wasn't a good enough writer at the time to write it. I just had to wait until I was a better writer. And by wait, he meant like he waited 20 more years. Yeah. So, um, and it's a fantastic novel. So yeah, no, these things can, life is long. Yeah. Let it simmer. <laughs> let it simmer. You might be able to let it simmer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, um, I thank you so much for your time and your inspiration over the years and uh, your amazing books. And uh, I can't wait to see the um, the tree book and uh, and everything else that's coming up. All right. Well, thank you so much. You can uh, follow Amy and everything that's going on at amystewart.com. She's got a Substack uh, newsletter that you can check out there. And the website's killer. So you head over to there. It's got all the info you need and all the, all the books that she's written and everything. So Amy, you take care, have a great holiday and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Amy Stewart for her time and for all her wise words and inspiration. And uh, that was just amazing. Look forward to more books and booze content coming up. And we've also got a really special episode coming with Paul Vaughn from Bearded Iris. We did the little Nochino episode with him, but we've got a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about. The convergence of bitterness and sweetness, Coca-Cola, going to talk all about the beards that he's making over Bearded Iris. So look forward to that episode as well as plenty more holiday content coming right here on Liquid Gold. Find us liquidgold.show and always at weownthistown.net. You can check out Amy Stewart at amystewart.com. Follow all of us on Instagram. You have at liquidgold underscore pod and you can find Amy Stewart at Amy Stewart. Super easy to find her. Thanks to Michael. Thanks to Upright T-Rex Music for the tunes. Thanks to Jess Matchin for the logo. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Very thankful to work with everyone on this podcast and to talk to so many amazing authors and distillers and bartenders and wine professionals and baristas. And there's always more to come and always more to explore right here on Liquid Gold. My name's Mike Wolf. We'll see you next time. Happy holidays.